Good morning, church. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the word that has just been read. And now we are seeking the Spirit's help. We are asking for your Spirit to give us a deeper and clearer understanding into your truth and hearts that are willing to receive what you have to say to us this morning. Keep us teachable, O Lord, all for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that really amazes me is just how relevant and practical the Bible can be. Now, I know that's not a widely held opinion. I know there are plenty of people who see the Bible as an ancient book of literature, which they might respect for its iniquity, but they probably view its content as irrelevant and impractical in today's modern world. But, you know, I wonder, I wonder if opinions will begin to change after going through this pandemic. Because now, now everyone's super strict about washing hands and not touching unclean objects and, uh, and making sure to quarantine the contagious away from the camp. And so I wonder if people are going to begin to realize just how relevant and practical the scriptures can be. I mean, if you just read Leviticus, you, you'll find plenty of laws that require ritual cleansing, that prohibit the eating of certain foods and the touching of unclean things. And yeah, I know that they ultimately point to deeper spiritual realities uh, that are, are fleshed out in the New Testament, in the gospel. But if you think about it, these laws do make a lot of practical sense. If you read Leviticus chapter 11, you'll find a prohibition against eating certain winged creatures like bats. And that's when you start to realize, well, maybe the Bible does know what it's talking about. Maybe there is something here that's both spiritual and practical, abstract and applicable, conceptual and useful to my everyday life here in Scripture. I'm seeing it that way, and especially as we've been studying the book of Proverbs. The biblical teaching in this book is so grounded, it's so practical, it speaks to the day-to-day experiences that we have, to the daily interactions that we have with people. Last week, we looked at what Proverbs has to say about uh, the power of our speech and how we should respond to angry words. Well, this morning, we're going to look at how we should respond to critical words to words of correction, words of rebuke, words of reproof. We're going to see that biblical wisdom is measured by our ability to take criticism and to receive reproof. The wise, according to Proverbs, are the teachable. They're the ones who realize they don't have all the answers, that they do have blind spots, and that there's always room to grow, always room to improve. But the foolish, the foolish, they ignore advice. They don't solicit any feedback and they react defensively to any criticism and they refuse to acknowledge blind spots because they're always right in their own eyes. That's the teaching that we're going to find here in Proverbs. And just think about this. Just think about how practical all of this is. The Bible is teaching that if you want to see growth, if you want to see improvement in whatever life pursuit that you're on, then you have to be willing to take criticism and receive correction. 
Any successful athlete or artist or musician is going to tell you they didn't get to the place that they are without receiving and taking to heart the critical feedback of their coaches and teachers. And, you know, we just had the NFL draft the other day. And just think about, you know, all these past highly touted draft picks that had so much potential, but it was never reached because they refused to take instruction. They ignored correction. They were too proud to accept any criticism. And friends, this doesn't just apply to elite professionals. If you want to be better, if you want to improve in your studies or in your career or in your marriage and in your parenting, then you're going to have to learn to take criticism and to listen to reproof. If you want to grow in your walk with God, if you want to be more fruitful in your ministry, then you're going to have to learn from others. This is just practical, biblical teaching. Now, let's get into our text. And what I want to do this morning is to show you three things that we can learn from first, the foolish who forsake advice. Second, the wise who receive reproof. And third, those who fear God and not man. So the first lesson goes like this. The foolish who forsake advice will ultimately hurt themselves. In other words, when you reject good advice, you're not just being unkind to the one who offered it, you're actually being unkind to yourself. You're doing yourself a disservice. Let's start here in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, and let's, let's, uh, let's work with a, a definition of a biblical fool. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Now, the fool is a character that shows up quite a bit in the book of Proverbs, and there's actually more than one Hebrew word that's translated as fool in our English Bibles. The word for fool that's more commonly used in Scripture refers to someone who is dull or stubborn. And it's not so much a charge of intellectual dullness, but of moral dullness. It's not that the the biblical fool lacks uh, knowledge of the truth. The problem is that he has no reverence for it. He actually likes his folly, returning to it like a dog returns to its vomit. The fool doesn't just reject truth. He goes on to reject God. He has no reverence for truth because he has no reverence for God. He lacks a fear of God, which Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. So the foolishness we're dealing with here is not an issue of the intellect, but of the heart. Now, the word for fool that we have in Proverbs 12.15 is actually a less common Hebrew word, which in many ways is still synonymous with the more common term. But based on how it's used in Scripture, this word, well, this word carries a much darker connotation. The foolishness of this individual is not just ignorant of the things of God, but makes a mockery of them. Listen to Proverbs 14, verse 9. Fools, same word as in Proverbs 12, fools mock at the guilt offering. They make a mockery of sin. They mock those who seek atonement for their sins. They mock those who believe they have wronged God and want to be made right with Him. They mock these things because they don't believe 
these things. They don't believe that they're wrong. Fools don't believe that they have wronged God. They don't acknowledge their guilt or their need to be made right with God. And why is that? Because fools are always right in their own eyes. Look back at Proverbs 12:15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And so the reason why the foolish forsake advice is because they're justified in their own eyes. They, they think they're right. They, they can't imagine being wrong on, on this issue or in that area of expertise. And that, that's really at the heart of the problem. It's that self-justifying mentality that really prevents you from listening to the advice of other people. Now, you know, I'm sure we've all been there. We've all played the fool. We've all spurned the advice of maybe our parents, a coach, a colleague, a friend. We've rejected what they had to say because ultimately we thought we were more in the right, that our way of doing things was more justified, more right than theirs. And, you know, now looking back, looking back, hopefully we can see just how rude we were how unkind our attitude was, how, how hateful even. But what Proverbs is teaching is that when you forsake advice, the person you're ultimately hurting is yourself. You're not just being rude or unkind to those who are trying to help you. You're actually being rude and unkind to yourself. You're, you're hating yourself. Just listen to what we see in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 32. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. So we're simply despising ourselves when we ignore instruction. We, we're doing ourselves a disservice, leaving ourselves in a position where it's very difficult to grow. It's it's hard to improve when you're always rejecting outside advice. You're going to find yourself in an echo chamber of counsel where you just end up doing the same things, repeating the same mistakes, and remaining in the same place. But look at the wise. Look at what the wise do. The wise listen to reproof, and they gain intelligence or understanding. They're willing to hear hard things. And when they ask for feedback, they're not just fishing for compliments. They want to hear honest opinions, even even if it stings. And it's because they don't automatically assume that they're right. They acknowledge that they could be wrong. There could be a better way of doing things. And because of that attitude, the wise are the ones who are able to grow, to gain a better understanding of themselves and of the pursuit that they're on. So the application, obviously, in this text is that we should seek advice to open yourself up to outside counsel, to ask for critical feedback and correction from other people. And the key here is to seek out many advisors and not just a few advisors whom you already know will simply just confirm your own biases. Listen with me to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So there is wisdom to be found 
in an abundance of advisors who are giving you a broad set of viewpoints. So that means don't just turn to a couple of friends that you already know are going to agree with you. That's the foolishness that was exhibited by Solomon's own son. He wrote Proverbs for his son, and sadly, Rehoboam forsook his father's advice once he ascended to the throne. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we read about one of the first decisions that young Rehoboam had to make as king. It was a request to lighten up and to loosen the strictness of servitude within his kingdom. And the old men, the old men who served with his father, advised him to lighten the load and win the hearts of the people. But we read in 1 Kings 12 verse 8, But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And so his buddies told him to double down, to be even stricter than his father, to squash any thought of rebellion among the people. And that was bad advice. That directly contributed to the split of Israel into two kingdoms. Now, Rehoboam could totally argue, hey, but I, I, I listened to advice. I, I, I took counsel from others. Isn't that what the wise are supposed to do in the book of Proverbs? Well, that's why it's so important to add that the wise listen to advice from many counselors, from a broad, diverse swath of perspectives. And so practically speaking, what this means is that we should, we should read broadly. Wisdom calls for reading broadly from, from newspapers and journals and articles and books that are, that are rooted in different political ideologies or worldview perspectives. So that means read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Watch Fox News and CNN. You know, read your favorite Christian author, but also pick up a book from a, from a Christian author who might differ from you in the secondary issues and read that as well. When was the last time that you read an article or a book or listened to a message that you knew going into it, you'd probably disagree with the author or the teacher, but you did it anyways because you were trying to broaden your perspective and possibly learn something new. The way of the foolish is right in their own eyes, which is why they feel no need to seek differing opinions or alternative ideas. But the wise, the wise listen to advice coming from many counselors, and differing viewpoints. So friends, that's the first lesson. And we learn it from the uh, attitude of the foolish. Now let's turn to the wise in particular. Here's our second lesson. The wise who receive reproof enrich their lives. They enrich their lives. So while ignoring critical feedback is a form of self-harm, doing yourself a disservice, Taking criticism is actually a way to help yourself. It serves your good. It enriches your life. Listen to Proverbs 15, verse 31. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Reproof can be life-giving. Being corrected can build you up. 
And yes, I know that sounds strange to our ears because we, we associate being corrected with being torn down, not built up. We, we, we associate words of reproof as words intended to hurt you, not to help you. And you know, I, I think it is fair to say that we should discern the kind of, of criticism that we're getting because the reality is that some criticism coming from bad actors is really simply intended to hurt you. And yes, some of that criticism that you get is unwarranted. It's not rooted in reality. And so let's not be naive and assume that all forms of correction or criticism is of equal value. But the wise, the wise won't come to that conclusion prematurely. They won't jump to that judgment. Instead, the wise will assume that there's at least a nugget of truth in that criticism, and there's, there's got to be some value in it for us to take away. That reminds me of what I read before of a South Korean man who found seven gold bars in the Seoul International Airport wrapped up in newspaper worth $325 million. Investigators believed it belonged to smugglers who ditched the bars before uh, being caught by customs agents. And the man who found that gold, well, he was a janitor cleaning out a trash bin. And I think wisdom calls for us to keep that image in mind. Even if the feedback you're getting sounds initially like garbage, just remember, there could be a gold bar in that trash. Or maybe it's just a small nugget. But still, regardless, the wise won't jump to defend themselves or resort to self-justifying. No, the wise will listen to criticism. And, and even if they don't agree, they'll mine through whatever is spoken and they're going to sift out whatever, whatever nugget of truth is of value in that word of criticism. Friends, you may not realize it at the moment, but the correction that comes from your parents or your spouse, or your boss, or your friends, that correction could be life-giving. It could truly enrich and enhance your life. And if those relationships are founded on mutual love and respect, then I think it's safe to assume that's their intent in sharing it with you. They're giving you a word of correction because they care about you. Sure, it's criticism, but it's the kind of criticism that gives life. It's good for you. It's for your growth. And it really comes down to that question of whether or not you want to grow. Do you believe that you need to grow, that you need improvement in whatever life pursuit we're talking about? Do you want to see growth? Well, Proverbs is teaching us that the wise are those who are constantly growing, constantly improving, and it's because they're the ones willing to solicit feedback, to accept criticism, to admit mistakes, and to make the necessary changes. That, my friends, is how you grow. But, you know, I, I know it's easier said than done. I know it's hard to receive reproof. Now, it's not like, we never take advice. It's not like we never receive any correction. I mean, w when my doctor reproves me for not exercising enough, I, I, I just take it without arguing. I, I don't make any excuses because I know she's right. 
So, you know, we're generally open to reproof coming from those that we respect or those that we recognize that have an expertise that we don't have. And, and especially if, if we're the ones going to them for advice or consultation, we're willing to accept it. But we have a hard time. We have a hard time when that criticism is unsolicited or when it pertains to matters in which we feel very competent in. So that's like parents receiving unsolicited parenting advice or physicians reading online reviews coming from their patients or students and employees having to give each other peer evaluation or preachers receiving feedback from the congregation. It's tough. It's tough to hear it. But it could be so good for you, so good for your growth as a parent or a spouse or a professional or a student or as a pastor or just it's so good for you in your growth as a Christian. Receiving godly correction is one of the God-ordained means of sanctification, of refining our character more into the likeness of Christ. It comes through the reproof and the correction of fellow believers as iron sharpens iron. I think one of the most helpful pieces of advice that I've received from a very seasoned pastor was to create feedback loops. He told me to create a feedback loop within my ministry. The goal is to create a culture in your church from the top down where criticism is actually invited. It needs to be intentional, and leaders are need, need to be the ones who invite correction, who solicit feedback. Otherwise, those who actually have life-giving reproof to share with you don't really feel comfortable giving it unless you create that culture where it's invited. And then the other helpful piece of advice I received was that before you institute those various feedback loops, you've got to pray for thick skin and a soft heart. Because our tendency is to grow thin-skinned and to have a hard heart. And thin-skinned people are easily bruised by the slightest reproof. And their hearts grow hard and resentful to those who offer correction. But the wise, the wise have thick skin that can handle the sharpest of criticism. And yet their hearts remain tender towards others, welcoming their feedback, even if it's initially hard to hear. And so I've tried to take this advice to heart. At the beginning of this year, we've instituted a uh, post-service review for English service. So each Sunday night, I gather the English staff and the worship deacon and any uh, key volunteers who were involved that morning. And we just walked through that morning service, giving each other encouragement, but also correction. And, you know, it's, it's tough to hear sometimes. It's, it's never easy to hear people tell you that, yeah, this wasn't that good, or you could have done this or that better. But that kind of reproof can be so life-giving. It can enrich your life and ministry. And, you know, I, I know I have ways to go in this. I, I'm just getting started. I, I know I still have more feedback loops that I need to create within my ministry, within my friendships, and within my family life. But, friends, we just all got to start somewhere. So where are you going to start? Where are you going to start by creating a feedback loop within that relationship? 
Remember, this idea is, is not just applicable to ministry. Creating feedback loops would apply to any aspect or any pursuit of your life. So just think about how you can create a feedback loop between you and your spouse, or between you and, and your children, your, your other family members, between teammates, or between colleagues, or a small group of friends. And if, and if it's not part of the culture yet, then consider being the one to initiate, to invite the correction, to solicit the feedback. And of course, make sure you pray in advance for your skin to be thick and your heart to remain soft and ready to receive whatever nugget of truth might be given to you. I think it's a clear sign of spiritual health if we as a congregation develop a culture of biblical correction where each of us are speaking truth in love to one another with the aim to give life and to build each other up and not to tear each other down. Now, I know that there's always going to be a danger that we might become a hypercritical community where everyone is always pointing out each other's flaws. And of course, that's not healthy. That's not where we want to go. And that's why it's so important to stress that all of these feedback loops and, and this whole habit and culture of giving biblical correction must be conducted within a larger context of biblical encouragement. So when I try to give correction to someone, let's say in a service review, I've been making it my aim to be clear and thoughtful in my feedback. And so that means not saying everything that could be said, but just to focus on one thing of substance and to clearly explain how it could have been improved. And I try to start with the correction. I try to start with how it could have been better so that I can end with a word of encouragement. Because I I want the last thing the person to hear from me is to be an encouraging word that identifies the specific ways in which God is working in their life or working in their ministry. That's what I want to end with. And, you know, to be honest, if I can't think of an encouragement, then I'd rather pass on giving the correction. Now, I don't want correction or reproof to just kind of hang out there in isolation. It could be easily misinterpreted, and it could fail to give life, which, of course, is what's the intent. You know, it's kind of like how, it's kind of like how sweet and sour need to go together. I mean, do you, do you really want to eat sour chicken? Are you really going to enjoy sour pork? But oh, if it's sweet and sour pork, well, well now that's life-given. That's the good stuff. So that's the point, to, to have our correction given within the larger context of encouragement. So that's some advice on how to practically and helpfully give criticism. But of course, the main thrust of our text is about how to receive criticism. And like I said, it's not easy to do. Everything in me wants to avoid correction. I want to ignore reproof. And it's either because I'm, I'm too proud, I'm right in my own eyes, or I'm too scared. Scared I might hear something that's going to bruise my ego. And, you know, usually it's it's both pride and fear working together to keep me from receiving any life-giving reproof. So uh, how do I change? How do I become a wiser person who's more willing to take criticism? 
What needs to happen for me to be the kind of person who, who actually solicits feedback and asks people for correction? How do I become that kind of person? Well, here's the last lesson. Those who fear God and not man will take criticism and receive honor. This is what we read in Proverbs 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Humility in this context refers to the humility to take criticism and to receive reproof. And that's the first step on the path to honor. So if you want the honor in the end, you want the recognition for excellence in in, in whatever life pursuit you're on, then it's going to take a process of growing and improving and learning from your mistakes. And all of that begins with humility. Humility comes before honor. And that's what the text says. And and, and what it implies is that pride, pride, my friends, is the big obstacle. Why do I have such a hard time taking criticism? It's because I don't have that humility. Instead, I'm filled with pride. I'm too wrapped up in myself and worrying about what other people are going to think about me. The Bible calls that the fear of man, where you both desire man's praise and fear man's opinion. And if you live under the fear of man, well, then you'll definitely take their compliments, but you're always going to shy away from their criticism. And if you ever do hear or read their criticism, it's going to crush you. To live under the fear of man is demoralizing. And that's why it says, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. The wise path that ends with honor begins with you abandoning the fear of man and embracing the fear of the Lord. And to fear God in this context means you're really more concerned about what he thinks of you. What you really care about is his opinion of you. You don't fear man's opinion anymore. So do you see how all of this works? Those who live under the fear of the Lord are not just humble people. They're the kind of people known for taking criticism well. You can tell them hard things and they're just going to take it. They're going to sift out whatever truth is there. But whatever they find, whatever nugget they find, they're going to learn from it and apply it. Those who live under the fear of the Lord can handle your tough criticism because they're not swayed by your opinion anymore. Your sharp words of reproof and correction can't bruise their ego because their ego has been put to death. It's been put through the ringer that we call the gospel. Friends, let me tell the gospel to you. The gospel begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins by proclaiming a holy, righteous, perfect God before whom I am unworthy. I, I am nothing but a wretched sinner. I, all I deserve is his wrath. All I deserve is his just condemnation. That's where the gospel starts. Friends, you have to realize that in the gospel you are going to receive the toughest criticism you'll ever face. You'll be told that there is nothing that you can do to deserve salvation, that that you are worse off in your sin than you ever imagined. The gospel says that you're so wicked 
We are so wretched that the only way God could ever forgive your sins and to be reconciled to you is for his son to die a bloody, brutal death on an ugly, wicked cross. If there was another option, don't you think the father who loves the son would have taken that other option? But the crucifixion was the only way. It was the only option because our sins are just that ugly and that wicked. Friends, if you believe this, if you're willing to receive this criticism and confess your sinfulness, then the gospel has totally humbled you. The gospel has slain your pride. It has put to death your ego. So now if someone tries to criticize you, you're going to think, man, they don't know the half of it. It's like what Spurgeon once said. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than you think, than he thinks you to be. That's how the gospel criticizes you. And that alone is a huge help to handle the criticism of other people. But you know, that's not all the gospel has to say. Because in the same way that it criticizes you, the gospel encourages you. It points you back to the cross. Yes, that same cross that had a sharp word of criticism against you, that same cross also speaks a loving word of encouragement. It says this, this cross and this man dying on the cross for you, this is how much God loves you. That he sent his one and only son to die on a cross in your place so that if you accept by faith both the criticism and the encouragement of the cross, you are fully forgiven, fully loved, and fully accepted by God. And now the next time someone has some criticism to share with you or some word of correction for you, now that you are living in the gospel and under the fear of the Lord, you can handle whatever is thrown at you. You're no longer beholden to other people's opinion. And it's because you fear the God of the gospel. You already know what he thinks about you because of that bloody yet beautiful cross. So now you can take that criticism. You can take that reproof and receive that honor that only God can bestow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this practical word from your scriptures. This is something that I know is going to be applicable for each and every one of us. Because, Lord, we are constantly in our lives needing to grow, needing to improve. And we recognize, Lord, that it's going to come through correction and criticism and reproof from those that you have put in our lives and ultimately from your own word, from the gospel. Lord, grow us, mature us, help us to become people who rest in the truths of the gospel that allows us to be free to receive the reproof and correction of those in our lives, that we might advance in holiness to be more like Christ, to give you the greater glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.